Cartography Podcast. This episode will be about the concept of pragmatism. So pragmatism as a philosophy began in America, and it was a 19th century movement. And it was basically a reaction to idealism is how it was first conceived. So the simple definition of pragmatism, and this is the way that we commonly think about it, generally refers to thinking of or dealing with problems in a practical way rather than by using theory or abstract principles. There's a more philosophical definition, though, and that would be an approach that assesses the truth of meaning of theories or beliefs in terms of the success of their practical application. Yeah, and, you know, I think it's very interesting the way that the sort of simple definition that most of us know uh, is really very different from this idea of like a formalized philosophy of pragmatism. Um, I want to say that for me personally, I try not to get too caught up in the sort of language and the mechanics of, of all these, you know, definitions and these kind of formalized philosophies. Cause I feel like for me, at least that can, uh, do a bit more harm than good. But I think a, a pretty good way to understand what, what at least I know is pragmatism is that it's, um, it's kind of a focus on objective results. And, you know, one of the shortcomings of that is like with any other ideology or philosophy, if you kind of implement it with, uh, with the kind of wrong intent, then you can lose focus on other values and other aspects of life uh, at the cost of, you know, this narrow focus on uh, material results. I think the most obvious critique that I would levy against pragmatism to begin with would be, how can you be sure exactly of what you're perceiving? Like, so for example, we know that people perceive things differently. Like for example, there's people who are blind or people who have hearing deficiencies. So, so we definitely know that there's differences in perception between people. So I think that, I mean, pragmatism ultimately does balance this by being an, a fundamentally an individualist uh, philosophy, but that then sort of creates this area where there's different truths for different people because people perceive things differently. You know, what we're ultimately kind of talking about is epistemology. You know, this this question or this discipline, this study of how do we know what it is that we think we know? You know, whatever we perceive, how do we know for sure that that's true? And this really does kind of, this is like a little bit of an intellectual rabbit hole in my mind. People can really drive themselves crazy with this stuff. And to me, where I land on it is just, you, you have to kind of understand that there is no such thing as ultimate certainty, but that doesn't really change your situation. Like human beings still want to live a certain kind of life. I mean, let's just even leave it at the individual level. You know, there's a certain way that I want to live certain things that I want to happen to me and certain things that I don't want to happen to me. And at the end of the day, I need to decide how I'm going to navigate the world regardless of how sure I am of, you know, my perceptions. 
Yeah, and fundamentally, I mean, that's a pragmatic way of looking at the world. And I think that pragmatism also reveals the similar minds fallacy. I think we talked about this in the last episode a little bit in regards to human biodiversity. I think all these concepts are somewhat related and you really do have to take seriously the idea that the way that you perceive the world is fundamentally different than the way other people perceive the world. And as a result of that, people draw different conclusions, there's different ideologies, and the idea to sort of universalize truth is sort of a separate project entirely. Well, yeah, I mean, again, all of this seems so paradoxical to me, because while all of that is true, and there are so many differences in perceptions, and ultimately in uh, the conclusions that people draw from those perceptions, we also know that you know, chances are if you and I look at a tree, we both see the same color leaves on that tree. You know, now this technically from a strict empiricist perspective, it doesn't prove, you know, that, that that tree is universally green or the leaves rather. But, uh, I think there's definitely some valuable information to be gleaned from that. You know, even if we can't, uh, perfectly you know, put it into empirical terms, you know, there's clearly a clue there. Yeah, I think the best way to look at that would be it's closer to an approximation of truth. Which ultimately uh, is, I think, a a fundamental aspect of the human condition, you know, is that we kind of need to be willing to make decisions, make objective decisions, final decisions based on an imperfect understanding and a lack of certainty because, you know, not doing so is, um, it's, there's like this other, I suppose it's a philosophical or, or epistemological perspective known as solipsism. And this is, uh, this, this kind of assertion that really the only relevant thing is one's own perception, which to me really is kind of the essence of psychopathy you know, because it sort of rejects all other experiences except for what you perceive. And at that point, turns you into, at the very least, I mean, a kind of non-empathetic individual. Yeah, it's basically just throwing the baby out with the bathwater in terms of latching on to the idea that, okay, there could be no absolute truth. Like, okay, we could all agree on that, but we could still agree that there can be an approximation of the truth by sort of everybody combining their perceptions together and saying that, okay, this is, this is what most people perceive to be a tree. So then we can approximate the truth by combining our perspectives. Well, but I mean, I'm not even sure if it's quite an approx, you know, if it's an approximation because it is in fact true that most people see it. Like even if we don't know for sure that that tree is a tree and that it is exactly the same thing to all of us, you know, we kind of have this, this reality that we're all, we can all agree that we're experiencing. Uh, so yeah, I mean, in a way that's kind of an approximation, but it's also sort of this, like, it's a, it's a truth that is just not quite as specific as we might like it to be. Yeah. I think that by calling it an approximation though, you're leaving the door open for the idea that the truth can evolve over time. So for example, if we, if we said we all perceive a green tree, let's say maybe in a million years, humans start to have, have evolved to perceive 
color in a different way, maybe we wouldn't call it a green tree anymore. But so, so the, so our approximation of what we were perceiving would have evolved at that point. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. I think, and what's interesting to me though, there is that we would still be, I mean, in this theoretical scenario, we would still be whatever we come to perceive that tree as, you know, whatever color in a thousand years, it's very relevant to me that people seem to be perceiving the same thing. You know, it, it indicates to me that there is some sort of consistency, that there is, in fact, some such thing as truth. I'm just not sure that we have the physical or mental capacity to really grasp that in the way that we uh, conceptualize it with words, if that makes sense. Well, this is why we started the discussion by saying that it's easy to fall down the epistemological <laughs> so rabbit hole. <laughs> it's so true. It's it's annoying for me to even <laughs> listen to myself talking <laughs> talking about this. But yeah, uh, I think uh, in conclusion, to kind of sum up the the pragmatist perspective, this is a quote that I think sums it up pretty well. So, for pragmatism, the final purpose of the mind is to transform the world, not to know it. Totally. And, and all I would add to that is transforming the world does not necessarily preclude you from knowing it. Right. So I think that like what it does well is it provides a rigid framework for navigating the outside world, which is why it suits the scientific method so well. So the emphasis is really on activity as opposed to ideas. And, and that's really why it was philosophically a reaction to idealism. Like you could see why it would fit into the timeline there for sure and then naturally that just yields this sort of maybe not optimistic necessarily but like a creator or builder type attitude like okay we don't want to hear about your philosophizing anymore like tell me tangibly how this is going to work how it's going to benefit me and and let's go do it like you can see pretty easily how again you can get not only in, you can you get lost in epistemology but you can get sidetracked with idealism as well and just really lose your connection to, to base reality. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, you know, at the end of the day, I think, uh, there is, I, I find this to be a very kind of sympathetic person. You know, I, I sympathize with this way of looking at the world quite a bit because, uh, I have found it like one of the main challenges of my life, of my adult life has been to really overcome the angst and frustration over, you know, uh, kind of perceived injustices or things that I think should not be the way they are, uh, and to really focus on what it is that I can do to change those things in my life, because ultimately, I mean, that is what I care about. Definitely, yeah. And before we move on too much, the, the last two points that I wanted to make were that, like, in, in a purely pragmatist mindset, utility is the only criterion of truth. So like it's re it really just focuses on how can this be how can this be useful to me. And then the second point is that it does have an inherent materialistic bias in that pragmatism only incorporates what we can what can be proven to provide utility. So as a result to prove utility this is subject to a sort of materialist measurement where you're separating parts from the whole and then trying to figure out how you could use that to advance some utility metric that essentially you're optimizing for. 
Yeah, which ultimately, I mean, just like with all of these materialist psychopaths, you know, looking to create a uh, this kind of technocratic system, you know, it it ultimately just comes down to one's intentions, and you know, if you're if you're using a utilitarian or pragmatist point of view to simply justify some sort of a sterile, meaningless version of reality, you know, you, you're just kind of choosing to do that. That is ultimately your philosophical perspective, you know? So, I mean, there really is kind of, I mean, I guess my kind of final word on it is there's no, there's no escaping philosophy. There's no escaping uh, the sort of fundamental questions because whatever end it is you're trying to attain through, through a pragmatic approach, like you had to decide that that's what you wanted. Yeah, so I wanted to use this episode sort of as a platform to model the idea of pragmatism by talking a little bit about um, what L has been going through the past couple of years in terms of buying property and developing the land and really try to give some, not, not necessarily advice, but just relate some stories as to how this process has gone tangibly. Yeah, and, and before I kind of launch into that uh, sort of step-by-step process, it seems relevant to just do, you know, for any of, of our listeners who are maybe joining us for the first time or, you know, haven't listened to 100% of our previous episodes, just kind of give a little bit of the background, uh, not only for what it is that I'm doing with my property and, and eventually my house and all these things, but just kind of explain why it is that we're talking about this. And in a way it's, it's kind of the impetus for starting this podcast. Uh, so, you know, Jay and I started this podcast sometime shortly after the kind of, uh, COVID-19 lockdowns really got going. And, uh, I think, you know, it's, it's kind of obvious that why that timing would be that way. Uh, you know, for me, this process, and of course for Jay as well. I mean, none of this started so recently. These are long roads, but you know, I, I feel like about ten years ago, uh, I really got switched on to the understanding that the uh, the world that we live in is is really very different from what I had previously understood. You know, being a product of the public school system and the military and all these things. Uh, that that there are um, kind of systems in place which create an environment that ultimately makes it very difficult for uh, a person to attain what I would call sort of fulfillment and uh, serenity and peace and all of these things that I think most of us find relatively important. And uh, this kind of got me started on, at first, I would say a very, very ideological, philosophical, epistemological sort of path where I was obsessing over the why and just sort of running around talking to everyone about all of the things that I found wrong with the society and like how scary it is. And, uh, and, and I guess that naturally led me to this very unsatisfying, stressed out, confrontational sort of place. And ultimately, uh, I got turned on to 
certain much more pragmatic uh, ideas and, and methodologies. And one of those was uh, permaculture, which we've we've talked about quite a bit on this in the past. But again, to just sort of summarize, it's a little bit of a um, of a method of food production. I, I hesitate to even call it agriculture because that implies kind of this centralized uh, staple producing system. Uh, permaculture, on the other hand, is a more small scale, uh, more, uh, you know, sort of, I would say, sustainable concept. And it focuses on human beings finding some kind of a symbiosis with the natural world rather than uh, attempting to subdue it as the, uh, I think, the, the sort of Protestant uh, ethic would dictate, you know, you subdue the, the land. Um, uh, we, we sort of are, are seeking to uh, kind of live on this planet for a little while and enjoy it rather than subdue it. I think this is like the real breakthrough philosophically of permaculture or integration with natural systems or whatever words you want to use to define it. Like it, it's really that by integrating into natural systems, that has pragmatic and tangible benefits to the individual. And I think coming around to that understanding is really sort of like a philosophical awakening in and of itself. A hundred percent. And I think it's, it's, it's uh, one of the toughest bridges, I think, for a lot of people to cross because it really does, at least in my mind, it requires understanding just how far from that everything we've ever been taught really is that, you know, uh, the, the culture of a kind of modern Western consumer society is just fundamentally at odds with, with, uh, the idea of human beings living in some kind of symbiosis with nature. And I would argue at least, well, there may be exceptions to this. I'm sure that there, you know, I know people who have been able to find at least apparently find some sort of deep fulfillment, uh, you know, in their careers, uh, in, in lots of things that can be found within the kind of modern, uh, Western paradigm. However, it really seems to me that, uh, for most people, that's a very difficult thing to attain. And especially in the world of, of, you know, you know, all this COVID insanity that we have been dealing with, to summarize it that way, uh, you know, this has never been more obvious to me than it is now. Yeah, I think the mind can convince itself of many things, and it's more pliable than most people think. But that's not to say you can't find any fulfillment in working in a corporate job, living in the pod, and doing all of that whole lifestyle. But it's just not going to have the depth of experience that you will in lifestyles that are more integrated with nature. I think that's just objectively true. I mean, you could have certain experiences that provide some fulfillment otherwise, but I think really the, the point here is to stress the integration aspect. Yeah. And also just the quality of experience. You know, I think we, we talked down here before about like how absurd it is for like some of these kind of, um, you know, we were talking about, uh, I forget the guy's name, but 
the guy who was on Joe Rogan talking about like, um, you know, turning all these psychedelic plants into pill form and, and all these things. Like, you know, there can be a certain version of fulfillment, if you want to call it that, a kind of sterilized version of it. And I think for many people, that's just like all they know. But, you know, there's just a big difference between uh, seeing a, uh, a movie of a sunset and seeing a sunset. You know, it's just, you can't exactly prove empirically how that works. It's just that way. And so to that end, um, I kind of have started this process uh, way too long ago uh, to eventually end up, you know, living some kind of a more resilient lifestyle based on, on the land, if you will. Um, I have been struggling with this while attempting to, you know, make a living raise a family, uh, and generally just kind of live as decent of a life as I can, uh, keeping in mind that, you know, I started this having absolutely no idea what I was doing and that there are risks involved with this as there are with anything. So just as a general word of caution and, um, yeah, caution, uh, before I really kind of get into this, I would really emphasize that part of it for folks is to just do this uh, intelligently, do it carefully if you're going to do it. Not everyone is going to do it and not everyone should, but understand that all of these things are a process and nothing is worth you know destroying everything else valuable in your life in order to achieve it. Yeah, I think this actually relates back to the similar minds fallacy idea. So like, I think some people are meant to be trailblazers. Some people demand to have more agency in their lives. And some people just don't, you know, and I think that mm -hmm. it's like, like you said, it's, it's not meant for everybody. And but for the people that I think feel really disillusioned by what they're currently working on, I think it provides a good outlet as something to at least be working towards or, or building on. Yeah. I mean, like I've said before, you know, I, uh, could never have believed in a million years that the apparently majority of people in this country would, would be not only willing, but totally enthusiastic about wearing maxi pads on their faces all day. Uh, you know, because they're being told that there's a virus killing everybody. Uh, but apparently they are. You know, and so, of course, none of those folks are listening to this, but just there, none of them are going to going to do anything like this more than likely. And, and that's fine. Um, you know, things are what they are. And, and I have come to kind of uh, see a certain a value to that. You know, there, there, it just is what it is. So moving on uh, to the, the more kind of pragmatic aspect of this. Uh, when I first got this silly idea into my head of uh, building a house on a piece of property out in the hills somewhere, you know, getting out of uh, the big city life that I was living, uh, getting out of the kind of work-a-day lifestyle, the, uh, some of the first obvious questions that came to me were, you know, where should I go? 
uh, I had to kind of think quite a lot about location. Uh, I had to think a lot about climate and terrain, uh, you know, which state, which country for that matter, you know, which part of that state do I want to live in? You know, uh, there are, of course, things to take into consideration, like, uh, you know, local laws and, and legal processes and uh, zoning restrictions and things like that. Those will ultimately be very relevant things to keep in mind. But I think more in the short term than in the long term. I mean, what you really want to think about is the more the more physical aspects of, of the property that you're buying. I think that's true. But also now, I think that what's gone on in the past year and the general political acceleration has sort of revealed that that might be more of a weakness than originally anticipated. And I would totally, like, I'll be the first one to admit that uh, I think I underemphasized the importance of, you know, things like, you know, local and state laws uh, and just kind of general demographic trends. Uh, I mean, granted, you know, things in your life will change in ways that you may not control. Uh, you know, as I've said before, I, when I first decided to move to central Vermont, I was married with children. So it did not really occur to me as a problem that, for instance, there are very relatively few people my own age in that region. Uh, it did not occur to me as a huge problem that, you know, this was a, um, despite what I just said, demographically, it's, a, a, the, you know, the liberal woke culture is extremely intense in many of the kind of population centers in the state of Vermont, as small as they may be. Uh, a lot of, a lot of college kids there, you know, a lot of, a uh, lot of pink haired folks. And that has absolutely affected my life. And, uh, it, you know, most particularly in the wake of this COVID insanity. I mean, I never could have dreamed in a million years that in these like little, you know, mountain towns, you know, dotted with farms and, and all these things that I would see people walking, not only walking around with masks, but getting just as kind of militant about the whole thing as they would in, in any other big city. Yeah, I mean, pragmatically, the universities are such a problem because it has transformed what you would think would be a quaint, small town with a grocery store and a couple of restaurants and bars where you would think, oh, if I lived 30 minutes outside of here, I would have I would be able to come into town, get everything that I need, and I'll be able to buy 15, 20 acres outside of the city and start to, and start this whole process in a in an affordable fashion. But but it's really changed the dynamic in a way that people probably wouldn't have anticipated five or 10 years ago. And that's just about exactly what happened to me. Now, I would not say, you know, I mean, so in the last, uh, I don't know, four or five months, I've actually been, I, I moved out of my apartment up there in Vermont and went to, have been staying with various family members uh, in an attempt to save up some some money for the uh, the closing costs of my house construction, and uh, you know I have experienced a few different parts of the country in this time. Uh, first, I was in New York for about three months uh, with a family member who lives right there on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, 
and I was just absolutely shocked at the level of insanity that I encountered there. I mean, it's not as though I didn't expect it to be crazy. It's New York. But when I got there and saw the entire population walking around in masks outside, I just, I couldn't believe it. You know, at first I didn't even know what to do. Um, but, you know, now right now, uh, for the last uh, month or so, I've been in the Tampa, Florida area. And as many of you know, Florida is kind of one of the states that has chosen to adopt it, at least a somewhat more reasonable approach to all of this. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I mean, it's still in a way, I have to say, like, there's still a lot of masks around here. Isn't it interesting how people champion Texas and Florida and the South for just a little bit of non-compliance? I mean, they're, they're, they're basically 90 to 95 percent complying with the way that things are in the rest of the country. But like the, the little freedom that is allowed or permitted here really just seems to be valued and cherished and publicized in a way that isn't exactly representative of, of the situation on the ground, especially if you were to look at it of a lens from like two years ago. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and so I guess all of this to say like, yes, you know, there are certain ways in which like you can kind of pick the wrong spot and it, you know, things can change on you, but it's also important to keep in mind that it, it like, you know, kind of, as we were saying before, like whatever the truth is or whether there is such a thing as truth, like, you're probably not going to ever have a perfect glimpse of it. You know, you're probably not ever going to come to the exactly right answer. And I think it's important at a certain point not to let yourself fall victim to paralysis by analysis. You know, you really do have to make a decision at that, you know, plan and consider and think about these things, but don't spend the rest of your life thinking about it and not doing it because while, you know, there are certain things I regret about choosing these, like there are, you know, if I had chosen New Hampshire, for instance, like I think I would be a little bit uh, more kind of pleased with my choice, but I didn't, you know, and that doesn't mean that I'm going to uh, just completely drop everything that I'm doing and say, oh, woe is me. You know, it didn't work out exactly my way. It's pretty, it's a pretty decent situation to be in. And yes, you know, there are some annoying mask people here and there. But for the most part, I can kind of avoid them. You know, I do most of my food shopping at farm stands and farmers markets. And, you know, I can kind of get away with a lot and it's fine. Even if you and me don't like the current political climate or social dynamics, I mean, ultimately, that's what integrating into the local community is like it, you're not going to get everything 100 percent your way, the way that you want. It. That's not what being a member of a community is. Absolutely. And and I would, I mean, this is, is worth kind of discussing a little bit as well, because, you know, to whatever extent you're doing this in some completely new place, you know, you're going to experience a little bit of kind of integration anxiety and, and all of the, the complications and the stresses that go along with that. You know, you are in fact moving into uh, essentially for all intents and purposes, a foreign land, you know, you're not going to know any of the people. Um, and that may, again, that just may not be something that most people want to do. But if, if like me, you had spent most of your adult life living in putrid, disgusting urban environments, 
you know, there, there just doesn't appear to be a much better choice if you really want to get away from that, which I did. Um, and so I have kind of chosen to pay some of those costs and, and do my best. Um, so that's kind of my spiel on choosing the place. Um, when you're looking at a piece of land to buy uh, or, well, to build a house on, because, well, let me just say a little word on, on kind of buying versus building. So uh, for, for many people, it, I think it would be a much more pragmatic choice, uh, depending on exactly what you're trying to do and when, to just simply buy an existing house, uh, you know, hopefully on a piece of land which can uh, sustain at least your immediate family in terms of food production. And, you know, the, the type of land, of course, plays into that and all these other details. But uh, the, the downside to that is that you know, what you buy is, is what you get. And in my experience, while there are exceptions to this, especially in certain regions, uh, you know, many of the houses which exist in America today that are for sale have extraordinary sorts of inefficiencies that you're going to have to contend with. And I mean, this can come down to, you know, very day-to-day -day practical things like, uh, you know, energy costs and maintenance costs and just the kind of time and resources and stress that goes into fixing, you know, these like cracks and water damage that often happen in, in these, like a lot of these stucco type houses that you see in, in a lot of the, um, you know, suburban developments and things like this. Uh, I made the choice that I did not did not want to live like that. And so I decided that I would build my own house. It's really something that nobody really thinks about. Like that there's, and this sort of goes back to the last episode where we talked about the idea of cultural pluralism in that there's specific housing types that are ideal for specific environments, obviously. So like if you live in the Northeast in the United States, you would want a house that has say a steeper roof so that the snow doesn't accumulate on the roof. But if you saw that house in Texas, well, it just wouldn't really make any sense to have that type of roof. So like you really are optimizing not only the house, but the property for the local environment as well, as well as for yourself. A hundred percent. And you should be mindful of all of the benefits and costs of that, you know, uh, that, that, you know, I'll get around to these details later, but the, the house that I'm building is going to have what's called a standing seam roof, which is specifically one of those pitched metal roofs that is designed in order to facilitate snow kind of, uh, sloughing off, you know, uh, when it accumulates. And the reason for that is because I do not want to find myself, I mean, even at this point in my life, but especially if I am still living in this place when I'm a bit older, you know, I, the kinds of things that people have to deal with just to kind of keep the snow off of their roofs and, you know, not to mention the cost of not doing that just seemed like a nightmare to me. Um, and of course, resale value is another thing to consider, but again, I'll get to that later. But yeah, I mean, the particulars of your physical environment are huge when it comes to deciding exactly what kind of house you may want to build or buy for that matter. 
Yeah, there's there's a saying that everybody is conservative about what they know best. And if you think about this in terms of building materials, I mean, it only makes sense that traditional building material, not only materials, but methods would be the result of pragmatic choices made along the way. Like this is what, this is the building that works here. That's why it looks the way that it does. Like it, it's aesthetically pleasing because it fits into the environment. Like you can't just take, um, you can't just take a teepee from the Indians and stick it in some foreign country and think that it's going to work there because it, it just pragmatically isn't actually going to work. Yeah, that's that's very well put. Um, I mean, there are certain ways in which, you know, uh, certain kind of innovative methods, which ha are sort of more typically associated with uh, uh, other environments and other cultures, you know, they, they can transfer over, you know, I don't know, uh, aesthetically, it might not be as, as pleasing, but um, they can pragmatically they can work but i i totally take your point i mean there's a lot to be said for the fact that like you know there's probably a reason that they had been doing it that way for however many hundreds or thousands of years uh probably because it worked you know uh which is also not to say that you should exclude um certain methods or approaches which are you know more recently developed or more technologically advanced or or whatever just kind of keep in mind that there are costs and benefits to all of these things. You know, uh, I would have liked, I mean, speaking of roofs, you know, the traditional thing in New England, as far as roofs go, you know, going back hundreds of years, was to take um, the soil happens to be, it's generally pretty poor soil because of the, and it's rocky uh, due to the relatively short summers. Uh, but there's a lot of slate rock in it, you know, which is like that very thin sort of layered rock. And um, what they had traditionally done is they would just dig the rock out of the soil, which would, of course, aerate the soil and facilitate, you know, growing food. But also uh, it, they would use that to build roofs and also stone walls to, um, to delineate property boundaries. Uh, now, I wanted to do that when I first got this idea into my head of, of building uh, a house on a property in Vermont. But in reality, based on my current level of income and based on, of course, how expensive that is today, and there are a lot of you know, reasons for that, uh, it, it just was not an attainable thing. You know, something that, for better or worse, you know, will end up affecting this for most people is financing. Uh, you know, slate roofs are extremely expensive and that material is extremely difficult to obtain. Uh, but, you know, banks will finance any number of different kind of approaches and, and methods and materials, but you are, you're, you're limited. You know, if, if I had hundreds of thousands of dollars saved up, uh, I could have probably gotten a traditional slate roof, but I didn't. So, you know, I kind of have to go with what's available to me. Um, so one thing, yeah, I mean, we kind of talked a little bit about, uh, about soil composition, but 
that's definitely something that you want to keep in mind when selecting a property uh, in the municipality that I live in. A uh, soil percolation test is a required, you have to have like a permit, uh, basically stating that, you know, your soil uh, allows for percolation of water. Uh, and this is to alleviate concerns about uh, flooding. Uh, flash flooding is a concern in many areas, especially in a lot of the drier areas out west. Is that mandated by the insurance company or is that a lo- like a local law? That's a local law and a state. I think that's actually a state law in Vermont because uh, uh, I had the state inspector show up to to perform that inspection um, as the what what basically happened was like I hired this guy who runs a, an excavation business locally, uh, and he just like dug a bunch of holes with an excavator. And the guy from the state, you know, stands there like he gets down in the hole and he just analyzes the different layers of soil, and you know makes a determination whether or not it's suitable to build a house on. Um, you know, one thing I mean I'm ashamed to say like. I didn't even know when I bought the property that that would be a required step. And fortunately, you know, my property passed or or, or like they actually choose spots on your property based on where you tell them you would potentially want to build. And so then you kind of get, you know, oh, this area here is certified and this area is certified. But, you know, in theory, it could have not been that way. And then I would have been stuck with a piece of land that I couldn't build on. Uh, So do something like that. I mean, the, the percolation test, I would say the soil test, whatever you want to call it, is something that you should ideally, you should buy a piece of land which already has that done. Uh, and if not, you may consider doing it yourself, even going out of pocket to pay for it. Even if, you, I mean, it's better to risk losing the because it costs a couple of hundred bucks. Uh, it's better to risk that than to risk buying a property and then realizing only later that you can't build on it. Yeah, in the current environment, it's difficult because that would definitely be something that I would want done before buying the property, right? But now in a lot of these cities, depending on what city you're moving to, the market is so crazy that houses are selling the same day that they're listed. So like as a buyer, you just don't have the you don't have the time and you don't have the power to even be able to to do to, to do some of these things which really creates a difficult situation on the buy side. And this is definitely something to consider when choosing your location. You know, personally, I would not want to try and buy property in an area where there is, you know, an ongoing real estate bubble. That seems like it would be stressful for a lot of different reasons. I mean, pragmatically, it just seems like a deal breaker in general, because like, how could you realistically sign, say, a 30-year mortgage or invest hundreds of thousands of dollars if you're not 100% sure. So like, I think that would be sort of characterized by like the, the mania stage of investing. And it's probably better pragmatically just to avoid that situation entirely, regardless of whether you think it might be a good investment down the line or not. But if, if you're really interested in doing this kind of thing, it seems like the risk is just like way outweighs the potential reward in that situation. I would agree, but I guess that also assumes that, you know, money is an object. I mean, I don't know if maybe some of our listeners, you know, have like a whole ton of money that they would be willing to burn through just to end up in 
you know, precisely the area that they want. And that happens to be, you know, somewhere like uh, Austin, Texas, or, or, you know, somewhere in Florida or something like that. Uh, I, I think that, um, you know, if, if it's just, again, it depends on what your situation is, but yeah, I think for most of us, uh, steer clear of, you know what I mean? Of, of that kind of thing. Cause you're going to end up paying way more than you need to. One thing that I wanted to ask you about was how did you, how did you decide on the materials that were going to be used and the designer and the contractor? Like how, how did you navigate that whole process? So, um, initially I was interested in, you know, some pretty kind of unorthodox, uh, home, you know, like I was really into the idea of kind of going off grid and there are a lot of, uh, uh, what you could call modular home companies or, you know, house building companies for lack of a better word. And they have these ready-made homes. I mean, they obviously, they, they custom build them for you, but uh, you know, they have uh, some of them have built in solar panels. Some of them are, you know, built out of like hyper energy material, uh, efficient materials and all of these things. Um you know, I've considered tiny houses, uh, just all sorts of interesting, quirky little options that always seemed really cool to me. And then I kind of ran up against this obstacle of banks and financing because, uh, you know, banks just won't touch that stuff in my experience. I mean, right off the bat, I will say that I haven't found a big bank that even does construction loans, uh, which is, by the way, that's the specific financial product that, you know, I'm talking about here. If you're, if you're, unless you have a whole bunch of money, again, saved up, you're going to need to take out a construction loan. And um, in my experience, only small community banks, um, not, not, not super small, some of them can be on the bigger side, but what you would generally think of as local banks you know, not your Wells Fargo, your city banks, that, that those uh, companies will not finance, uh, you know, regular residential construction projects. And so I ended up going with a, uh, a log, basically a log cabin, you know, it was like a modular, you know, home building company, and they, they build log cabins. And uh, that is something which appealed to me aesthetically, appealed to me in terms of overall energy efficiency, uh, you know, and just kind of long-term maintenance concerns. It's, it's not perfect by any means. I mean, there are many like way more durable materials. Uh, for a while, I was really into the idea of like building one of those shipping container homes, uh, you know, just for a lot of different reasons, but mostly because, uh, it's an incredibly durable, long lasting material. Uh, but again, banks won't finance that. So that's just, that wasn't really an option for me. Um, so I ended up going with, uh, with a log cabin and banks will finance that. Uh, it's, it can be a little bit tricky in some ways, you know, because oftentimes, uh, they're not considered to be full time, at least it's not assumed that log cabins are going to be full-time permanent residences. Uh, you know, they are typically, at least in the past, they had been built 
as, as like recreational properties, you know, vacation homes. But one of the reasons that I decided to go with that is because they will build um, homes which are significantly smaller than what typically, you know, uh, most kind of modular home companies, at least that are like on any level kind of have any sort of quality. I mean, you can get like a trailer, uh, but those things are really kind of pieces of shit in most cases. They do not, um, they do not function very well, especially in a cold climate like where I live. You know, you just end up paying a lot more in terms of regular energy and maintenance costs. And the resale value is just absolutely garbage. So that's kind of how I, kind of how I made the choice for the log cabin. So then did they, did the company handle the actual construction of the structure or did you have to hire a contractor to do that part of it? So the company supplies and delivers the construction materials after you sort of, I went through this kind of long process of collaborating with a guy over there. Uh, and, you know, and by the way, this is a very important step, which really kind of sealed the deal for me is I went and I looked at an actual model of one. I would say it's extremely important to do that. Uh, because I had a lot of concerns about, you know, would this thing be big enough? I mean, is it, is, you know, like just what would it be like? And it wasn't until I actually stood inside of one and kind of climbed around all the little nooks and crannies that I realized that this would more than suit my needs. Um, but yeah, you kind of go through this design process and you make all these custom adjustments, you know, obviously they have certain restrictions. You have to keep in mind zoning. Um, so you really want to kind of be able and willing to uh, communicate with a lot of different entities at the same time. You want to be able to, you know, and this took me like a really long time to just kind of awkwardly work my way through this, you know, because you, you just don't know who to go to to ask these questions. And that's kind of part of why I wanted to do this episode like this. Uh, but it, it's like this back and forth process of, okay, so this is what I want to do with the house. And this is what the guy at the log cabin company is telling me. Uh, so number one, will the town allow it? Number two, how much will it cost? Number three, will the bank finance it? And you're just kind of bouncing around. Eventually, you come up with a uh, basically like a rough design. Okay, so like this is my little house plan. And, um, and then they supply you with those materials that are part of that kit. Uh, I decided to hire what's called a general contractor, which is effectively a project manager uh, who is responsible for, well, in this case, <clears throat> my general contractor happens to also uh, do excavation. So they'll, they'll be doing the foundation work and some other things, but uh, they also are the ones who are project managing like all of the the various vendors, you know, the plumber, the electrician, the uh, carpenter. Um, in theory, and to be honest with you, you know, based on some of the difficulties I've been having with that general contractor, I, uh, I have been thinking myself about, you know, is this necessary? Um, 
you know, in theory, you can kind of be your own general contractor. And while I would definitely check with your local and state governments to make sure that that falls in within zoning restrictions or within zoning requirements, uh, you know, it, you, you can theoretically do that if you, especially if you kind of know a little bit about this stuff. But I decided that it would just kind of, this is way too important for me to feel like I'm taking that kind of risk. I would, I just didn't feel comfortable going that way. So I hired a general contractor. Yeah, it's interesting. That pretty much confirms the viewpoint that I've had from watching tons of real estate development shows as every good American does. Um, it, it it really seems like some people can get away with it, but they really do make it clear that like it would be a full-time job to do it. And it's like not going to be easy. Yeah. And I also have a full-time job, you know, and I'm also in school. And so it's, and, and again, you know, that being said, I still feel like, you know, kind of thinking through all of these things and, and making all these decisions and figuring all these things out. I mean, it's still a full-time job. Um, so, you know, be, be prepared for sure to, to kind of really focus and dedicate yourself to this process, especially since it's probably one of the most important things you'll ever do. So, um, let's see here. I want to kind of talk about, I want to make sure that I get all the, the different aspects of this. Um, uh, you know, acreage is something to consider, I think, in, in a long-term sense. Uh, you know, for me, it was important to have the option of, um, of kind of building additional structures on my property. Again, one thing I will reference constantly throughout this discussion is zoning restrictions. I would strongly, strongly encourage you before even buying any property to contact the local zoning administrator and get a very, very clear sense of exactly what you can and cannot do on this property. Yeah, I think that's a big one, especially like, so I actually wrote an article for the American Mind and it's it's coming out soon. Part of the vision that I'm trying to portray in the article is we, to the idea of looking at our properties, like where we live as multi-generational investments. And I, and I think that's really like a fundamental shift in the way that we as Americans are trained and taught to view property or homes, right? So I think just having like to have the long-term vision, like a few generations down the line, to say like, okay, maybe we'll have five structures at some point. How do we have the infrastructure to be able to accomplish that? And the first thing, obviously you need the land to be able to do that. So I think like, especially for people who are first getting into this, like that might seem like kind of crazy, but like it really is true. The more that you get into this, the more that you start to be pulled towards those multi-generational type decisions. Yeah, for sure. Very well put. Um, I, and again, referring back to our opening discussion before we got into this, you know, you, you kind of have to keep in mind that you're never going to know for sure. You can't predict everything that's going to happen. So you kind of have to be willing to hedge your bets a little bit. A, a big part of this process for me has been balancing those two things that you've just talked about. The 
the desire and the need really to create a multi-generational foundation, you know, which hopefully one day as much as possible of my family can, can uh, use as a, as a refuge if they want to, or perhaps even to kind of, you know, uh, include uh, other people who are not family members. Uh, you know, I wanted to have enough acreage to allow for at least a couple of more structures down the line. At the same time, I am not 100% certain that any of that is going to happen. I am not at all certain that I'm even going to want that 10, 20, or 30 years down the line. And so I have uh, tried to balance things like resale value uh, against you know, all that multi-generational stuff. And it's not so simple to do, but you just kind of have to. Yeah, I think a key component of the idea of pragmatism is the ability to retain optionality. 100%. You have to hedge your bets. You just cannot put all your eggs in one basket uh, because, you know, life will teach you that that is just a, a terrible sin. You just can't. So, um, yeah, we talked a fair bit about the kind of home design process. Um, construction loans are something which you know, you, you want to shop around for them a fair bit. Uh, this is actually kind of one of the simpler aspects of this, even though it can be overwhelming, you know, I mean, keeping in mind all of these different interest rates and just the different ins and outs of, of, uh, these deals and the timelines and, you know, what percentage, you can pull out in terms of equity and all these very kind of mind-numbing, boring details. I would encourage people to get comfortable with literally just writing these things down. Um, if you can meet with bankers in person and have them write it down for you, uh, because you need to be able to to kind of compare side by side, you know, what is going to be the best deal you can get. Um, so you, like I said, yeah, they're not really popular with big banks. Um, you know, local banks and credit unions for sure are the way to go. Um, just a kind of briefly to go over at least what my process was again, keeping in mind, like this is going to vary for everybody based on, you know, what state, what county you're in, uh, and you know, what the, the circumstances are, what the interest rates are, et cetera. But for me, the bank needed, before they would process my construction loan application, they needed this house plan that I was talking about coming up with, uh, with, the, with the log cabin company. They needed a septic plan and a septic permit. So to briefly talk about that, I mentioned already the soil test, the percolation test. Another thing is you have to, I happen to use the same excavation company. Uh, th th they basically come up with a septic design because in my municipality, as in most municipalities, that is a required component of building a house. They simply assume that you're going to have a flush toilet. And if you're doing new construction, uh, they, they require you to have a, a septic system design. And this is more complicated than people may assume because, you know, you got to figure uh, that there are 
environmental concerns. There are water quality concerns. Uh, they don't want you to just design a system that is going to, you know, send a bunch of sewage overflowing into the immediate area. Um, you know, for me, this is really kind of a very annoying aspect of this because I'm pretty dead set on doing a composting toilet system. And they're literally, I mean, here goes this whole zoning thing. They are literally forcing me to spend a, like, it's going to end up being like $35,000 just, you know, to build this system that I don't really intend to use. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's completely insane, but at the same time, you know, I mean, part of this is just cognitive reframing. I mean, they're making me do it, so I have to justify it somehow, but you know, resale value is something to consider. I mean, even if I'm not going to use it, it may be a good idea to have it because I may want to sell the home to somebody who, you know, who, who will want that, who won't want a composting toilet. That makes sense. I mean, there's definitely a pragmatic angle to it, at, to looking at it as an investment. But yeah, I, that, that's so, sort of surprising to me. I would think that in Vermont, you know, you can do pretty much whatever you want. But You would think that. And no, unfortunately not. Um, they, they make you put in a, a septic system. So that uh, plan and permit is another piece. Uh, you need the signed contract with your general contractor, or if you're acting as your own general contractor, you need the signed contract with your vendors, you know, so your carpenter, plumber, et cetera. Uh, you need, you know, all the regular financial documents that you would normally do for any loan. So tax returns, pay stubs, um, and uh, documentation of any debts or liens against you just your basic kind of financial documents. Um, what sort of happens then after like a preliminary pre-approval is that they take all of that information that you've given them and they conduct an appraisal. And the appraisal is basically, I mean, most of you guys are probably familiar with just, you know, home appraisal. But what this is, is, uh, the appraisal company comes out and they create a sort of a projected value based on adding what they decide is the current market value of the property to the uh, value of your construction project. And then in the case of my bank, you know, they will, the, the actual loan will be a percentage of that total value. Uh, it really helps to own the land outright because if, um, I mean, in the case of my bank, they're only going to give me a loan that is equal to 80% of the appraised value of, you know, the, the theoretical house. And so what that means is that if I did not own the land outright, I would have to come up with cash to cover that difference. Uh, which, you know, some of us can do, but not all of us can. And, uh, it, it, what I have working in my favor with owning the land is I can pull equity out of that. So, you know, using the, the real estate value of the land alone, I can kind of, um, you know, supplement the loan amount. There are, um, a fair amount of kind of, you know, uh, unusual or, or relatively unknown, financing options uh, that you guys may want to explore. I ultimately was not really able to take advantage of any of these based on, um, you know, like 
so for instance, uh, USDA rural development loan is kind of one of these things that you hear a lot about. If you're building a land in a rural, building a house in a rural area, the United States Department of Agriculture has a program where they sort of, they want to incentivize rural development. So they'll give you a loan at a low interest rate. Uh, and uh, typically these kinds of loans require very little to no money down. The problem is that you have to find a, um, a construction company, a house building company, which is willing to work within the USDA's parameters. And one major obstacle I found was that they don't pay out any of the funds for that loan until the construction is finished. Now, the problem with that is that, you know, neither house building companies nor contractors are typically in a position to do much work without getting paid for it up front. There are companies which will do this, which have kind of, um, you know, deals set up with the USDA, (laughs) regular business relationships. Uh, And it's because they're larger companies that function at a kind of an economy of scale where they can afford to, you know, offset those costs for a little while. Uh, But they typically, in my experience, do not build very high quality homes. These are typically geared towards pretty low income folks. And, you know, again, they, they often, those kinds of homes suffer from lots of inefficiencies and shortcomings, which I personally didn't want to deal with. It seems like those companies might have lobbied for that <laughs> pass. One, if one were cynically minded, they, they might put that together. I refuse to consider that, Jay. Yeah. So, um, you know, there, there's that sort of thing to consider. Um, uh, myself being a veteran, I fully intend to take advantage of uh, a VA loan interest rates. If I'm a, I'm still not entirely sure I understand how this works, to be honest with you, but apparently I can. So like, you know, the VA loan typically only applies to uh, just like buying a straight up house. But I think there's some way that I can refinance, like I know I can refinance after I close my construction project. And I think that I can do that at some kind of a VA rate. I wish I could explain more about that, but I honestly don't know. Uh, It'll have to be through a mortgage broker. So hopefully, you know, through that process, I will learn a little bit of something about it. But that, you know, that is another uh, option for people who just want to buy a house. You know, if you happen to have served in the military, you can use the, as, as most of you guys probably know, if you are veterans, you can just buy a house with uh, no money down and, and relatively low interest rate, as far as I know. Yeah. The interesting thing about the financial situation for the time being, at least, is we're sort of in the cycle where rates are on the rise again, but they're still super low. So we're sort of in this period where interest rates are lower than inflation. So at that point, you can make a pretty good argument that it's not even usury to to have a uh, 30-year mortgage as long as the interest rate is lower than inflation. But you're paying for that in terms of opportunity cost at that point. So the way that it would work is that, is it is your money best spent in a real estate investment or is it better spent in the stock market or any other type of investment? So there really is no free lunch with any of the finance stuff, but it is worth pointing out that uh, mortgage rates are still super low historically. Absolutely. This is extremely relevant. I'm glad you brought it up because this is a big part of the reason why I feel such a sense of, 
you know, relative sense of urgency to get this done sooner rather than later. Um, now, you know, I'm building a very small house. Uh, it's relatively inexpensive. The, the total of this construction project should, I emphasize should, because I don't know, but it should end up totaling less than $200,000. Uh, the, you know, it's still my monthly payments, including taxes, like based on the super kind of uh, the worst case scenario estimate, including property taxes, including like utilities, uh, my monthly cost is still going to total less than, not much less, but slightly less than the total rent that I was paying at my shitty little one bedroom apartment in the tiny little town, you know, a few miles away that I was living in. So however, you know, annoying all of these costs and restrictions and this whole process is, Keep in mind that, you know, as Jay said, like in in this environment of inflation, uh, we we can, you know, see all of these rising rents where most of us have been experiencing for quite some time. It's very, it's one of the only ways to kind of get ahead of inflation is to get yourself a fixed rate mortgage because at the very least you can count on the fact that you know that portion of your like your cost of living your basic cost of living for your home is going to remain relatively constant uh at least as constant as you know the legal framework which backs up your your loan you know of course those things can change i mean there can be you know coups or whatever but again hedge your bets you know you got to do the best you can yeah it's interesting in that the in the in the US it's sort of different in Europe like it's more formalized in Europe like especially in the UK they talk about having like a property ladder and then everybody in the society has this understanding that oh if you buy a house you're moving up in the world and then there's this sort of upward trajectory like societal trajectory that is like understood and formalized within the society but i think so so much of the volatility uh in the United States sort of doesn't lend us to have that same perspective, especially as a result of 2008, right? Like a lot of people in a lot of areas are still underwater on their mortgages. Um, and then in addition to that, if you're talking about like Chicago or Detroit, like there's just a lot of areas that property values have gone down, you know? And I mean, who's to say what could happen with Seattle and San Francisco and even New York at this point? Maybe, maybe New York is less at risk than those other ones, but there still really is a lot of risk, I think, especially like geopolitically in the United States for, for real estate in general. There absolutely is. And, you know, you, you just kind of have to do your best to find the safest, uh, safest bet that you can. No, again, there's, there's just no certainty in any of this. It's, it's actually interesting that you, um, you mentioned that example of like, you know, the, the property ladder, the whole idea that, uh, uh, you know, buying property is kind of connected with with a certain amount of of social status and like you're moving up and and yet i mean as we just discussed ultimately you know in some cases at least it's actually a way of economizing on your cost of living you know you're you're sort of yeah in a way you're you're kind of you're becoming a property owner but you you're also saving yourself money. And in some cases, in my case, for sure, I mean, this house is going to be, uh, while very aesthetically pleasing, you know, to me, this whole idea, I, I love what it's going to look and feel like. 
uh, it's going to be a relatively austere lifestyle. It's a small space. You know, I'm going to have to make a lot of adjustments that have raised a lot of eyebrows, you know, from my, uh, my general contractor and some of the folks that I'm working with, they're kind of shocked that, uh, I'm actually willing to use a wood burning cook stove and a composting toilet. And, you know, they think I'm crazy because I'm not going to be able to sell my house. Well, these, these are some of the things that don't necessarily, or at least as it meets the eye, you wouldn't think that these would be necessarily pragmatic solutions, right? But if you really do have a holistic understanding and appreciate all of the elements of these like products and services that you're going to be uh, engaging with and part of these processes, I mean, then it really would be fulfilling and tap into a level of depth that might not be perceived by everybody else. Yeah, especially by a bunch of boomers who have, you know, never kind of seen very much in the way of fundamental, uh, you know, demographic and real estate trend changes, you know, in their lives, or at least to whatever extent they've seen them, you know, they, they, they're not really kind of getting the implications of that. And I mean, look, I could be wrong too. I don't know what the future holds for sure, but I do know that there are a lot of people who, even if they're not quite as crazy as I am, they are finding themselves, you know, basically disillusioned and just kind of sick and tired of, you know, uh, uh, dealing with all of the difficulties and inefficiencies of what typically constitutes home ownership in the United States, whether it's maintaining or paying for these incredibly inefficiently designed homes, these homes that are just way too big for their needs. I mean, to take a little, you know, as for example, that the house that I'm staying in right now in Florida uh, is being occupied by, you know, one woman and her child. And it is a two-story house with three bedrooms. Uh, it has, you know, this very, like, expensive to run air conditioning system because they're in Florida and it's just like, you, you can't live without air conditioning here. Uh, th it's there are a whole host of headaches that they're having to deal with in a home like this. But, you know, the sort of general perception is that it's kind of better to have more than to have less. Well, it's just more complicated than that. And as many people in our generation are coming to realize that they would like to perhaps, you know, trade some of those things like space and like, you know, uh, the, the most uh, expensive or the, the most uh, technologically up-to-date systems, you know, for something... Uh, which they can afford and which perhaps provides them with a little bit uh, more kind of quality of life and uh, induces them to maybe, you know, uh, learn a few skills that they might like to acquire that make themselves, you know, feel a little bit better about themselves. You know, all these kinds of things, uh, like I can very clearly see that this is a, a growing trend, a growing market. Can I guarantee that that means that I'm going to be able to sell my house at a profit? No, of course not. But, you know, it's not as though I'm completely discounting uh, the value of, of, you know, being able to resell my house. I just am trying to hedge my bets, as we were talking about before. It's not necessarily a simple uh, 
especially since a lot of these kind of real estate theories about, you know, resale value and things are just like, they're totally aggregated. You know, they just assume that the value of a house in central Vermont is the value of a house in California, you know, and, and it's just an extremely uh, uninsightful way to look at the situation. If you drive around my area, you'll actually find us, I mean, a very noticeable number of these very strange looking, you know, unorthodox homes, everything from yurts to like these, you know, things covered in solar panels and just uh, all sorts of crazy things. It just seems absurd to me that I should be held to this standard of, you know, your, your basic orthodox, you know, resale value. It just, I, so I have found that whole thing to be kind of frustrating, but it's, it's just always important to keep in mind that like my instinct is to just dismiss it all, you know, but there is value to it, to that way of thinking as well. You just want to kind of adopt a very flexible and sort of open-minded outlook on all of this. Is there anything else that you wanted to hit that you haven't hit yet? Yeah, just briefly. Um, I, again, this pertains to my, you know, uh, town and, and state, but, uh, Vermont requires you if, if you're, uh, like your driveway or your access to your property is going to connect to a, um, a state highway, which mine does, uh, you have to have an access permit. And so that would definitely be something to keep in mind. That's a part of this whole permitting process. You have to have someone from the state come down and make sure that, you know, the proposed access is kind of safe in terms of like the traffic that's headed up and down that highway that runs perpendicular to it. Um, it's a relatively simple process, but you know, it needs to be done. Uh, and then of course there's the final, um, zoning or construction permit or whatever you want to call it that you have to get from, in my case, the town. Um, again, these things are going to vary. My understanding is that in a lot of Southern states, it's more based on County than town. Um, you know, some states take a kind of a more direct hand in these things than others. Um, but those are, are definitely like at some point you will have to get like a development permit and that is going to, uh, that is going to require basically presenting your plan to, uh, in my case, the town board and they need to approve that. Uh, for most residential projects, you know, something low key, like what I'm doing in theory, it should not be a problem. This is something where a lot of uh, commercial developers, you know, run into a lot of extremely expensive, um, you know, hangups, and and they're because what they're doing can be kind of more controversial. And and the risk, of course, with this is that here I am. I have basically. Uh, gone all in on this. I mean, I have applied for the loan. I have put down the deposit on uh, the house kit. I have the materials delivery scheduled. I have a contract with a contractor. Um, you know, and all of this has cost me a whole ton of money. Like these, some of these other things I talked about, like the um, the septic plan. I mean, this is like thousands of dollars. All this crap, uh, and I still don't even technically know if I'm 
going to be allowed to do this project or if they're going to say, oh, well, you know, we don't like the color of your roof. And so you need to, you know, you need to choose another one. And then that that can who knows? I mean, it's just any number of things uh, can come up. And unfortunately, there doesn't really appear to be a very like a much better way of doing it uh, because these people have the legal authority to to decide. It sounds like you're still pretty much in the thick of it all, but like, has there been any moments where you felt like a lot of relief or felt like you were finally like getting over a major milestone and getting, getting closer to the end? Do you see the light at the end of the tunnel yet? I, I am like growing increasingly optimistic, like cautiously optimistic. I feel so I like at this point, I have kind of completed all of these sort of little homework assignments that were for me to do. Like I've gotten all these permits, I've gotten all the, I don't technically have the zoning permit in place yet, but that application is being processed. And like, I've been staying in very close contact with the zoning administrator. I made sure that he was like happy with what I was sending him. And, uh, you know, that's another kind of part of this guy's like, be willing to talk to people. You have to like you have to develop as much as you can anyway personal relationships with these people because you know there's just no substitute for a conversation. You you kind of need people to explain to you at least if you're as ignorant about all of this as I am still. Uh, you know what the hell it is that you really need to do. What is going to actually get you that result? But I feel like once I got the confirmation from that guy that that you know my zoning application permit permit application was being processed. That was huge. You know, uh, I, I feel like I can kind of relax a little bit, at least because there's nothing further I can do. You know, uh, I know that the appraisal was actually the inspection for the appraisal was done on Thursday. And I still don't know how that's going to turn out. I don't know what the appraisal value is going to be. And the biggest thing that is causing me to lie awake at night is the fact that I don't actually have a loan yet. So I'm actually in a situation right now where I have put the deposit down on this house kit and the materials delivery is scheduled, but I don't technically know if I'm going to have the money to pay either them or my contractor. All indications are that I will. And believe it or not, I couldn't have done it any other way because an essential component of the loan application is the contract with the house company. And they won't sign that contract until they get their deposit. So, you know, you just, you have to be willing to take these insane risks um, because there's just no better way to do it. But have fun. You know, so in a nutshell, I guess I would say that... This is a process which um, there, you know, there are many kind of different ways to go about uh, uh, getting to your your property, living on a, on land, and and you know, living a more sustainable lifestyle. Think it through carefully. There are many things I wish I would have done better, but all in all, you know, uh, as I have said on here before, you know, the the. What's the best time to plant a tree yesterday? What's the second best time right now? There, there just there comes a point where you have to make a decision to get started. I did it how I did it. I'm still kind of working my way through it. And it's always good to adopt 
a just kind of problem solving mindset, uh, you know, at a certain point, you just have to do it. Yeah, just some final thoughts. I, th- I think this is a different episode than we've done lately, but I think that it made sense to sort of model for you guys the the tangible process of what it takes to actually embody some of the ideas that we've talked about throughout the duration of of this whole podcast. So hopefully this episode is is useful, um, like pragmatically for yourself, if you're interested in pursuing any of the ideas that we really talk about on here. Yeah, very well put. I think uh, this time in history is uh, a particularly good time to start thinking in slightly more pragmatic terms than many of us have uh, been comfortable with. You guys deserve to uh, to live good lives. It's just that you have to do it yourselves. 